When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Those are the incredible sounds of the pump room from the Chernobyl soundtrack from Hildur Goodnadotter and her sound recordist, which she talked about in a previous episode with her, Chris Watson. Chris Watson, the legendary, uh, probably the most recorded nature sound recordist in the world. Legendary recordist who has traveled to every continent recording the world and... And many of the David Attenborough docu-series and films that you've seen and heard, more importantly, because um, without the sounds, I mean, the visuals are beautiful, but it really comes together with the amazing sounds that Chris Watson records. And we thought, after talking with Hilder, that it would be cool to track him down. And when we did, he was somewhere in the world, in a tree, probably, stringing microphones somewhere but um joining us now we're so thrilled to have chris watson he's one of the world's top if not the world's top nature recordist he's a bafta award winner chris thanks for coming on score the podcast we appreciate you uh, taking the time it's a pleasure i always enjoy conversations about sound (laughs) i love that and i it's great that we are actually using some modern technology to record you i know you're in newcastle on tyne in the uk we're here in Fabulous Hollywood, California. Um, and we, we actually, um, just a few weeks ago on our show, we had the brilliant Hilder Goodnadotter on talking about Chernobyl. And you came up quite a bit in the conversation. And uh, I felt the need to track you down. And I'm glad we were successful. But you've been out of the, out of the country for a while or uh, away from home, which I'm sure you do a lot of. Is that correct? Yeah, I've, I've had a busy time. I'm not complaining. I've had a very busy time since since April. In fact, I think I was saying I've only managed to catch program one of the Chernobyl series because I've been in, I started off in New York in April and then I went to Iceland, which of course is um, Hilda's home country. Mm. And then mm. I went to the Pyrenees in the uh, south of France right up in the mountains and then I went to Tasmania which about is about as far away as you can get from where I am now mm-hmm. and then I came back and went to Kenya on the equator I was recording there and I came back from Kenya and went straight to the Scottish Highlands which I think is where you tracked me down wow so I've been wow. away a lot because I work on location a lot and and so and my work is quite a lot of the work is quite seasonal so over here it's it's been springtime and early summer so that's why i've been so busy it's quite incredible to hear that because if you think about most filmmakers and television makers 
they bring a camera to those locations to get the most wonderful pictures of Kenya or Iceland or the Scottish Highlands or Tasmania. But your art form is sound. And so you go to those locations to record sonically what they sound like, what the reality is of a moment in time in Kenya, for example. And I think it's a probably underappreciated, your art, and clearly you've become one of the, if not the most successful person at doing this. We particularly were interested, first of all, I mean, I'm interested in all of it, and I had so many questions, but Chernobyl, what Hilder mentioned in passing, we found unbelievably fascinating that she wanted to create her score from sounds that you recorded. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and also where that idea first evolved? It was um, Hilda gave me a call. I've, I've known Hilda a long time. I've, I've worked with her on several projects, and, and I've you know I've got the greatest respect for her work as a musician, as a composer, and an artist. So, being given the opportunity of working with her was was an easy question for me. She called me up sometime last um, autumn, fall, and said she got this project to create the soundtrack for this series, which sounded fascinating. And would I be interested in in going over to Lithuania, where there was a a twin uh, nuclear reactor identical to the one at Chernobyl, which exploded, which was being decommissioned in Lithuania to stop producing um, nuclear power and was in the process of being taken apart. But we had incredibly privileged access into this space. And so would I like to go with her and do some recordings inside the place? And knowing how Hilda works with sound, um, and particularly the sound of places and the spirit of places, uh, it was just too good an opportunity for me. So we we both flew out and Hilda went out with Sam and we met up in in Lithuania and and got access to this place. Remarkable, privileged access uh, as... Like, you know, I, I was, it was unbelievable, given the security in there, the biosecurity and the physical security of getting in and out of that place. We were really lucky to get in there and, and really get literally on top of what was the nuclear reactor. Wow. And into some of the wow. most remarkable, yeah, wow, some of the most remarkable places where, I mean, I'm very privileged. I've been to both ends of this planet. I've worked at the North Pole and I've worked at the South Pole. <laughs> I can tell you, standing on the silvered dome um, of what was and had been a nuclear reactor, particularly given the history of those reactors, like the one that went through the roof in Chernobyl, it was one of the most remarkable, and I have to say, spine-chilling experiences I've ever done. I've been in some dangerous places, and, and i I'm not saying that Ignalina was particularly dangerous, but it had that air about it, that malevolence in that you knew what had happened there and you knew the potential of what could happen if that nuclear power was released in a bad way. Um, And I just felt vibe coming up through the whole place. Is this uh, the idea of recording the sounds and turning them into a score. Had you ever done anything like this before? Because we hadn't heard of this before. 
Okay, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with it. I, I made, um, a few years ago, I worked on a television documentary, a BBC series called Great Railway Journeys. Mm. And I went to several places around the world taking long train rides with the film crew. And we went across Mexico on what had been the great state railway, FNM, Ferrocarriles Nacionales de Mexico, the, 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 the railway system, a national system that had driven both sides of the revolution. And we went across from Los Mochos on the Pacific coast to Veracruz in the Atlantic. And it, it took us five weeks. And we lived on board a train. And I was fascinated by this. And, and we, we were sleeping in carriages. We had our own bedrooms. It was very luxurious. It was a 1950s presidential carriage that we travelled in. So we each had our own bedrooms. But we were rocked to sleep at night by the rhythm of the railways. As a sound recordist, I've always been interested in, in, the, in this idea of music concrete, mm-hmm. a term uh, which was created in France in the late 1940s out of French radio. So composers like Pierre Schaffer and Pierre-Henri, French artists, musicians, sound recordists, started creating music from sounds around them. And when I was a teenager, a long time ago, I first heard a piece of music concrete called Etude au Chemin de Fer, the Song of the Railway. And it was created by Pierre Schaffer from recordings made in a a railway station in Paris in the late 1940s. And I first heard that as a teenager when I was sort of 15, 16 um, in the 1960s. And it just blew me away that people could create music from what was called found sounds. So I was very familiar with, with Hilda's idea. And I, in fact, made an album of my own called El Tren Fantasma, which was a, what I thought was the music of the railways for this Mexican railway journey. Um, because at the time I'd been absorbing these sounds, even when I was asleep and the train was travelling. And we all know what the rhythm of the railways is like, mm. has this wonderful mm. heartbeat rhythm. And it had been characterised around the world by artists and musicians, um, the sounds of railways. And so I, I made an album out of the sounds of, of this railway journey. And, and so when Hilda suggested this, I knew exactly what she meant. I've worked with Hilda in the past on a, the score for a glacier in Iceland. I, I'm, I recorded on the Vatniokel Glacier, which is the largest glacier in Europe. So this sound of a river of ice flowing at this imperceptible speed to our eyes and ears, but using devices, hydrophones and geophones recorded in the crevasse of the ice, I could draw out these heartbeat rhythms, which I then made a piece with and Hilda sang along to in a, at a concert that I did with her some years ago. So, yes, I'm very familiar with it. It's just... I think... It, I mean, I have to it, say... Sorry to interrupt. I have to say that I think all our music from all cultures around the world has evolved and have evolved from people listening to their environments whether they're natural environments, wildlife environments, or urban or industrial environments. We're constantly influenced by the sounds around us. And, and it's, so it's not a difficult leap for me to consider making music from it. I absolutely this is so fascinating. agree. I think it's fascinating, hugely fascinating. I have so 
many questions, and um, I think you're right about how our environment, certainly the industrial sounds of the last 20, 30, 40 years in music are not hard to trace. It makes me think of uh, Olivier Messian and his use of, of yeah. words and uh, and just um, wonderful evolution for you of your uh, design of sounds into music and music concrete. I think it's fantastic. I wonder when you mentioned, you said two words I've never heard before, but I loved hydrophone and geophone. What kind of gear do you bring to Iceland or to Tasmania? Because you have to travel, I'm sure, to locations that aren't easily accessed. Do you travel light? Well, uh, as light as possible. I mean, the older I get, the lighter I try and travel. But um, I use... We're talking to each other now through microphones, aren't mm-hmm. we? That These are devices which convert changing air pressure, which our voices are creating, to, and turns it into an electrical signal. So inside a microphone, there's a capsule that's, that's going up and down, that's varying continuously as the air pressure changes, this membrane. There are other ways of listening to sound. So a hydrophone... Is basically an underwater microphone. Mm. So that's a microphone mm. that's not only waterproof, but reacts to pressure and vibration in the seas and the oceans and can convert that into a, um, an audible signal. And then geophones are the devices that go into much denser substrates like the earth, the sand, or even rock, and they pick up vibrations in those more dense mediums and convert that into into audio. So, for example, the earthquake that you had in Southern California yes. just a few days yeah. ago, that would have been detected initially by either seismometers or geophones that are planted in the ground and are sensitive to, to vibration in the earth. And it would be those transducers which were triggered by the early signs of the volcano, of the eruption, which would alert the scientific community over there. If only you were here during the earthquake, you could have gotten some. There's been a couple. You should get over here. What are you doing? Chris, you should get over here, and you should call all of us immediately to say your geophone (laughs) is is tracking something. I think it's fantastic. The number of earthquakes you'll get over there, I'm quite happy in the northeast of England at the moment. (laughs) That's yeah. Um, I on your or actually, I think you sent me a link in the email with this uh, Glastonbury Ocean soundscape. Now, was that that was a hydrophone? Is that are those underwater sounds we're hearing? Yes, they were exactly. I was yeah, I was very privileged when I knew what was going to happen at Glastonbury. I was I was invited to compose a soundscape before David came on stage, and I thought the most appropriate thing would be the sounds of our oceans because it's a place I've I've recorded a lot and I'm very, um, I just love the sounds of our seas and oceans and the animals that live in it. And remember, of course, that, you know, we arrogantly sometimes think we live on planet Earth and, of course, we don't. We live on planet Ocean. Mm. 70% of of our world, of the world, is occupied by the seas and the oceans. Sound travels almost five times faster through seawater than it does through air. So the seas and the oceans not o- are not only the largest habitat on the planet, 
they are the most sound rich and we very rarely get the chance to hear what's below the surface. Well, we can hear that in this in this cue we're playing. Do you go down into the water or do you just drop a mic? No, there's no there's no reason to go into the water. <laughs> I use hydrophones on long cables and I sit up top with a cold drink and then my tape recorder. <laughs> just like a recording engineer would. Yeah. And um, when you said Glastonbury, Glastonbury, of course, is the mother of all rock festivals. Uh, certainly our Coachella and Bonnaroo here are based on the original model of Glastonbury. Did you, and David Attenborough, I know, came out to huge applause. Were you slotted in between some punk or hip-hop bands? Here's Chris Watson with Sounds of the Ocean. <laughs> no, it, was, it preceded David's uh, introduction. It, that was the whole point. It was to give people a chance. It was a, it was a very short piece. It was only, I think, only four and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it preceded David's entry. So it was a moment of relief, actually, I think, from a lot of the music. A chance to just stop everything else and just listen to the sounds of the planet for a minute rather than listen to pumped-up musicians, uh, which everybody else was doing for the rest of the festival. And, of course, we call it music. We allude to a lot of animal sounds as music. We call it bird song. We call it whale song. We call it seal song. We give it a musical reference. And I think that's yeah. significant. Any plans to release the Glastonbury Underwater Suite? Yeah, it's on, it's on my Bandcamp page at the moment. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful, because uh, we've been listening to it here, and it is really unique, incredible. Thank I you. I think there's something um, very interesting in your... I know that you had a band. I was, I was aware of the band, and after you mentioned Music Concrete, the thought that your band was called Cabaret Voltaire speaks volumes to me. I have been to Cabaret Voltaire, and I'm aware of the history. Oh, wow, in Zurich. Uh, in Zurich. Uh, I have a photograph of me in front of the Cabaret Voltaire. I also am aware of the history of the Cabaret Voltaire, which is where the art movement Dada was born. And certainly yeah. there's a lot of ready-made and found art in the visual space in Dada. Is that where Cabaret Voltaire and your band name came from? Yes, totally, yeah. We were, I mean, this is a long time ago. Um, you know, I'm 65 now. and But it, when I was in my 20s, we were, I was with a group of people growing up in Sheffield in the north of England, and we were fascinated by music, film, and all the artistic disciplines. But I think for a lot of people in those communities at that time, music was a really good form of escape, and it was a great way to investigate the world. So I grew up listening to um, the Velvet Underground and, and Lou Reed, and I was fascinated by those spectacles, Andy Warhol's exploding plastic inevitable, and that whole scene of of multimedia fascinated me and I, I, I liked I think I thought there was a lot of references to Dadaism and, and the Cabaret Voltaire in some of those movements and some of that music and so um, I really started to tune into that and it was the Cabaret Voltaire used sound and music most famously that um, some of Hans Richter's um, poems used as, with a very sort of musical delivery to tone poems um, 
so it influenced, influenced us a lot. And I also used to use my recordings in our music at that time. I think the change came and for me, and I, I've only started to understand this in the last probably 10 or 15 years, that I suddenly realised I was becoming more interested in what I was hearing outside of the studio and what I was recording when I was out of the studio than the music that we were trying to create. And you know, I think John Cage encapsulated that very well by saying, saying, paraphrasing him by saying something like, there's enough music already out there in the world. All we need to do is listen. Well, four minutes and 33 seconds certainly does that. You just <laughs> listen to the room and the audience, the famous John Cage silence where he sits at a piano bench and does nothing except listen. Chris, I want to ask you about your travels. Um, I imagine, I think you, you may have already mentioned this, but you're in a small group of our world's population that has been to all seven continents. Is that accurate? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious if you know how many countries you've been to. Do you count that anymore? <laughs> I don't know. Don't keep a list. No. Where do you go on vacation? Or do you, do you even want to travel when you're not working? That's a really good point. I have to talk quietly about this because my wife is next door. She loves to, she'd really like to take a really nice vacation <laughs> somewhere. I'm yeah. really happy staying at home and just mowing the lawn uh, when I get the opportunity. <laughs> but um, I, you know, we're talking about that at the moment, actually, about where to go and where to have a vacation. I, um, you know, I'm not moaning, I'm not complaining. I have the, it's an immense privilege I have travelling to these places. But um, I would like to spend a little less time at 46,000 feet um, flying at 500 miles an hour and spend a little bit more time at home. But as I say, you know, I'm not... I'll t- well, I've got the opportunity, I'll go there and take it. What's the scariest place you've gone to get a sound? Like, I imagine that uh, you, you, you try to keep yourself safe, but sometimes you're out in these, these wild land areas, these, the wildlife, I mean, you're just another another being out there that could be at at risk yeah uh, that's i don't want to be facetious some of the most dangerous places i've ever worked are city centers um you know because it, it's it's very unpredictable and people are the most, certainly the most dangerous animals on this mm-hmm. planet uh, and so uh, you know i'm always very cautious about that i think if you're in wild places providing you you take the right precautions and a lot of the time I'm working I sometimes work alone a lot of the time I'm guided by either scientists or rangers or people with local experience and the best thing to do is listen and do what you're told Um, and, and that's it you know they'll they'll keep you usually keep you safe it's only when you try to make your own decisions or, or veer off from that, that you can run into dangerous situations, which I've done a couple of times. Um, so I've just learned to listen to what the local people or the scientific community tells me, because they've got experience. The thing about filming in particular is you, you fly in there, you get to bust into somewhere as a film crew, and you absorb the information that has taken some people decades to acquire. And with the BBC, it's a great privilege because if we go, if I go 
and work. Because I, I was in Kenya recently. We were, we were tra- recording and filming northern white rhinos. There are very few left. And so we went to work with the rangers and the people who spend their lives with those animals. And so what happens is you come away as sort of a two-minute expert on northern white rhinos <laughs> because you absorb the knowledge of decades that other people have had. But the main thing is just to be aware of, of where you are and listen to the people with experience with, with what they tell you to it's do. It's so smart. I'd say it's only once or twice that I've made a mistake and I won't do it again. <laughs> if, if you were at a party and someone said, what's the scariest thing you've ever experienced? In, in the animal kingdom? Sure. Um, a few, well, so years ago, actually, the first one was one of the first times I went to Africa. Um, I was working on a feature film, so I had a storyboard. I wasn't with the camera crew, and, and I needed to record hyenas at night when they emerge from their dens. Hyenas are very social animals, and they live in what are called clans. So about 15, 20 hyenas, and they live underground in large burrows, and they emerge at dusk and circulate amongst themselves and then spread out to go hunting. So I went there with, with a Maasai friend who became a very good friend of mine, Francis, and we rigged microphones through the bushes and suspended them over this hyena den and ran the cables back through the bushes back to our vehicle which was about 100 yards away and we did this in the afternoon when the hyenas were underground and come sunset as it was going dark we were on the equator in the Maasai Mara in Kenya the hyenas emerged and we got these I got these wonderful recordings with microphones above the den of the young and the adults greeting each other and then they all dispersed and it went dark. And I thought they'd all dispersed. And it got to about 10 o'clock at night, so four or five hours later. Francis was fast asleep with his feet on the dashboard. And, and it was a starlit night. I, I hadn't heard anything for an hour. So I thought, well, I'll just go and get the microphones back. It's, you know, I, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't hear anything. So I got out of the car and started winding the cable up. Fortunately, getting out of the car must have woken Francis up because behind me put the headlights on on our Land Cruiser. So I was lit from behind and my pathway to the microphones was illuminated. And just underneath the microphone, I could see about six orange pairs of eyes (laughs) just waiting. And I was walking straight towards these animals just like a... A lunatic, you know. So I got, I just very put the cable down, got back in the in the vehicle. And, and Francis, if an African, if a Maasai waves their finger at you, it means you're in big trouble. <laughs> and I'll, ne- I'll never forget Francis's face. He said to me, "Never, never, never do that again." And I haven't. Yeah, those hyenas. They were saying, "Hey, what's for dinner?" Yeah. And the answer was in unison, Chris. <laughs> I've got a recording of a hyena biting the leg off a giraffe bit its leg off the 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 jaw muscles are so powerful oh my god oh was it did you think about that sound or was that recorded yet <laughs> it was after oh, that oh man but it's in oh, my memory man. i can tell you well that's an incredible tale and uh, such a pleasure chris to hear these stories i i know we could hear many more and uh i'm excited because frankly i'll be in kenya in 6 weeks oh really where are you going uh exactly where you're speaking 
Masai Mara. I would enjoy and, it. You'll love I it. I think I'm probably going to stay in the Land Rover now. <laughs> yeah. And if anybody waves their finger at me, I'm just going to huddle up in that car. I tell you what, if you can, if you can, because I do, I've done a lot of recordings from the roofs of those vehicles, because quite a lot of them have big sunroofs, mm. so you can climb mm. out onto the roof, and that's a really good place to record and, and see what, what's happening, because you're out of okay. the vehicle, um, and so you don't have the acoustic of being inside a metal box. Uh, so if you've, I don't know if you're doing any recording, but it's... Um, Probably just with my iPhone... <laughs> uh, taking pictures, but amateur. Strang- strangely enough, we were told that uh, the place to be careful when you're in Kenya is not out in the Maasai Mara, but in some of the neighborhoods in Nairobi. Yeah, be really careful in Nairobi. We we always have people with us. Um, I mean, drive. Be very careful if you're driving on your own. Uh, we've always been told in most areas. Don't ever stop at night at a red light. Mm. Wow! Um, mm. On the, wow. you know, just don't stop because there's a lot of people get taken when the vehicle stops. Just wanted to ask you one quick thing about your process um, because I'm not so familiar with the sound recordist. And um, when I was researching you, I was just so fascinated by what you do. And I'm curious when you come back from a trip. Are, do you turn those sounds over to someone, or do you also do sound design for many of these shows, like on the BBC? Yeah, I do, I do quite a bit of sound design in uh, my own work in sort of composition. I mean, Chernobyl, for example, Hilda invited me out there, and so I made the recordings working alongside Hilda and Sam, and I took a, a surround sound microphone array so that when Hilda and Sam... When she was back in a studio in Berlin, um, she could move the perspective. She could move the microphone in post-production, and so make a selection as, as she where she wanted to tune into a particular space. So my job on location was to capture as much as I could of the atmosphere and sense and what I regard as a sort of spirit of place and the acoustic of that environment, how it spoke to us and how we felt about it. So I gathered like the raw material. And so I use a lot of surround sound techniques to soak up as much sound as possible so that then Hilda, when, when she went back, she could then make the decision as to which part of the sound field she wanted to tune into and focus. So there was a, there was a lot of post-production in that respect. Um, and that, that's usually the case. I mean, I, I um, not always, but I, I try and record pieces so that when it's played back or when the audience listens to it, it it's it puts the audience where the microphone was when the recording was made you're really creating instruments and uh you know our sponsor for this podcast is spitfire audio oh yeah and i think that they may be very interested in this there may <laughs> be a chris watson library ahead of all the fabulous sounds that you've made I encourage you to check out your own incredible work because Chernobyl was amazing. And <laughs> yeah. it is, it, I know that you've been off the grid, but there are so many articles about Hilder Goodendotter changed the way a score sounds. And a lot of them are mentioning your work in there. And by the way, the, it, it goes together with an incredibly shot and perform the performances in the show. I mean, that, that show is on its way to, all the award shows for sure um including but, one for you yeah 
And I think that if uh, you and the missus are looking for a destination, you know, we're here in Los Angeles. You can come visit us. Disneyland is here. I'm sure that'd be fun to record. And uh, (laughs) Malibu. So, you know, I don't know. It might be a busman's holiday, as they say, because the entertainment business is here, and that might be the last thing you want to be near on a vacation. Plus, but, plus we have 3.0 earthquakes averaging every, like, four uh, minutes. I think that, <laughs> that geophone can come in very handy. Now, I've worked in L.A. quite a few times. In fact, my touch, the, the label which I, I work with, and Hilda's released music on, Mike Harding's out in L.A., so um, he's been trying to get me out there for a bit to do something. Oh, I always love coming out there um, because you have that great contrast between the city and what's all around it, you know, the desert and the oceans, you're in a fantastic position yep. in terms of habitats yep. and a great mixture. So it's always a pleasure to come and record that. Well, oh. we, we know that your time home is precious, so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us after a long trip. Um, and uh, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that this has been an absolute pleasure. Chris, stay away from any hyenas in Newcastle on Tyne. Do us that favor so we can talk to you again. I'd love to. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for joining us all the way from across the pond. Yep. We'll see you, uh, we hope, here in Hollywood. I'd love to. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Wow, how cool was that, Robert? That was so cool. I loved it. I I mean, we, we had this conversation with Hilder. We heard Chris Watson's name come up. And just as I imagined, he would have some scary stories, some cool stories, and He's just he just lives on the road, which it sounds a little terrifying, but also like what a privileged life to to live and get paid to travel the world and see some of the places that most people don't even get to see. And to hear some of the places yeah. the way he does it. Really an original life. But it's cool too that, you know, when we go on vacation, we post a picture on Instagram and like our friends get to see it and they're like, oh, I would love to go there. He's recording things that are presented to the world and that are forever documented as biographies on our planet yeah. in, in all these amazing places that are unsafe or crazy or difficult to travel to that, that you normally wouldn't go to. So it's what a cool job. And it must be really rewarding. Like what a footprint he's leaving behind. And uh, we're lucky to have him on. Um, So we're going to get out of here on this bonus episode. Keep listening to score the podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Robert say goodbye. Goodbye.